Welcome to the Farmer Forum podcast. In today's episode, I speak with James Burt, CEO of Pharmanovia, about the wide-ranging potential of value-added medicines to revolutionize the space and how these differ from generics. From polypills to longer shelf lives and striving to overcome side effects, as for example in hypertension medicines, by pursuing personalized dosing, that is to say, precision medicine, and thereby improving adherence levels, it becomes clear in our conversation that the ability to lessen burden on health systems is there to be utilised. Also discussing the sustainability factor and reconfiguration and reimagination of supply chains and saving money in the process, Bert describes Pharmanovia's admirable ESG undertakings and how they are walking the walk, not just talking the talk. An enjoyable and enlightening conversation, Bert also looks into the crystal ball, so to speak, and shares some future-looking points, importantly, including for incentivization, getting healthcare costs under control, and overall, improving health outcomes. Do you agree with his pearls of wisdom? Let us know. And as ever, thank you for listening. This is web editor Nicole Raleigh, and today I have with me James Burt, CEO of Pharmanovia, a global pharmaceutical company that commercialises novel medicines and revitalises, extends and expands the life cycle of established medicines. Welcome, James. Hey, very nice to meet you. Thanks, Nicole, and uh, very happy to be here. So, James, to begin with, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do at Pharmanovia. Sure. Well, look, I think it's a personally a really exciting tale. Um, I came on board just over two years ago. Um, the company has a history, a heritage of being a partner to larger pharmaceutical companies as they slim down their product portfolios. You can't focus on everything. It's basically the, 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 the sort of concept. So quite often, large pharma companies will divest some of their older medicines. As I came on board, I noticed a real opportunity to do something a bit different. And I think this is our philosophy, our sort of secret source. Those older medicines are often really well accepted, well tolerated. They're good. They're efficacious. But in the last 20, 25 years, there's been an explosion of pharmaceutical technology. You know, we can do things with medicines that 30, 40, 50 years ago, we just couldn't do. We can make long acting forms. We can improve the way that they enter the body. We can come up with new formats like patches or nasal sprays or sustained released formats. So all of these technologies are out there. And what we've become adept at is finding barriers to those old medicines, things that we can do to overcome those barriers. And so effectively make a value added medicine. And I think this is such a great concept. It's something I, I talk about continuously, um, but it's certainly at the heart of what Pharmanovia does. And I, I guess in a, in a nutshell, I explain it this way. It's like we've got a garage of vintage cars um, and we've now got the technicians that can adapt those vintage cars to make sure that they're meeting the emission standards for tomorrow. So it's taking something beautiful and, and legacy and re-engineering it to be better for tomorrow. I love that analogy. That's just brilliant. As you say, it sums it up in a nutshell. So speaking about value-added medicines, earlier this month, you were appointed Chair of Medicines for Europe's Value-Added Medicines, or VAM, sector group. 
And that aims to drive sustainable innovation and improve patient access to value-added medicines across Europe. So briefly, how does this tie in with Pharmanovia's work? I mean, from what I've just explained with the the, the, the classic car analogy, this is the heart of what we do at Pharmanovia. Now, we are doing some extra things on top. We've built a big platform that allows us to bring new medicines to market as well and potentially re-engineer those. So I've got a real passion for this value-added medicine area. And I've been involved with Medicines for Europe for over 20 years in its current and previous forms. I rejoined effectively the, the value-added medicine sector group as I came on board at Pharmanovia because I recognised that the two entities have a, a shared mission, which really is to get value-added medicines helping patients. What I'm really excited about, if you look at how value-added medicines are effectively incentivized in Europe, it's not a great tale, but we're at a point of inflection. So if I look around the world, the US is responsible for something like 65% of value-added medicines. Where you're getting real growth, though, is in emerging markets like China, Brazil, South Africa, South Korea. All of these health systems are grabbing and, and, and promoting value-added medicines, and there's a very good reason for it. In terms of bang for buck, you get much better outputs for relatively limited investment. So if I look at a blockbuster new, I don't know, ADC or, or gene therapy or, or a third-generation biotech product, you're going to be paying hundreds, well, maybe tens, maybe hundreds of thousands per patient. If you're looking at what I've just described, renovating old medicines smartly, trying to fix their limitations. Typically in a treatment, you have a pathway. So you'll start off with the tried and tested, typically the cheaper medicines, and then you've got steps in the treatment ladder until you get to the really expensive, novel, new medicines. So I see an, uh, a real appetite from health systems to stretch that ladder, as it were. And if you can find something that's more economic and efficacious, that's brilliant for patients and ultimately taxpayers or insurance policy payers, whatever. So what has been quite frustrating for me is how far behind Europe is. So very much my mission at the VAM sector group is to liaise with policymakers. I reference that point of inflection. What's happening right now is a review of the pharmaceutical strategy for Europe. And there's some really tantalizing opportunities coming through that where effectively they're creating potentially a new pathway for these value-added medicines. As the legislation stands today, you've got a full application, so a brand new drug with phase one, two, and three clinical trial data, and you've got generic drugs that are under Article 10, and they effectively co-opt the trial data of that new application. What we're talking about is a third way so typically with those value-added medicines, you have to do some clinical research. It's not as arduous and complete as a, a full new drug filing, but it's not as copy-paste as a generic application. And if we can get that designation and pathway, we can then have sensible conversations with the health technology assessors, the, the payer bodies, to say, look, this is something that's, from a health economic standpoint, really good. We can help people and we can save you money effectively because the output will defray more expensive medicines or social costs. So for me, this is Europe potentially being at the start of a revolution in medicine. And, and certainly Pharmanovia wants to be playing its part 
in that revolution. Certainly. Talking about the benefits of value-added medicines and talking about the differences from generic medicines, as you've just been describing there, I wondered if you could just provide slightly more detail between what a value-added medicine is and a generic medicine is going into the sort of technology behind it and, as you say, the, the different costs involved for listeners. Sure. And, and, and in reality, value-added medicine covers a spectrum of advances of that base what I call vanilla generic. So if you've just done a copy paste of the originator molecule, it might have been conceived 20, 30 years ago, there's no value add. When you look at how drugs are used, if you take, say, an injectable drug, a really simple value-added medicine is going from an ampule, say, of an injectable medicine or a vial into a pre-filled syringe. So you change the manufacturing technology, you effectively get something that's ready to administer. Now, that might not sound like a very big breakthrough. In certain settings, that's a massive safety benefit. You can stop people maladministering product. It's often in high-pressure circumstances, better to have something ready to administer. You can imagine in a cardiac crash, do you really want to be breaking an ampule and trying to get that medicine into a patient? And actually, with that same example, you look at a lot of elective procedures in an operating theatre. They have to prepare in advance ready to administer medicines the moment that ampule is broken and the drug is effectively in a syringe if you don't use it and it's often being made in a prophylactic sort of fashion so it's there if needed they throw it away so actually if you can have a well-conceived product in a pre-filled syringe with a two-year shelf life you're saving wastage you're ensuring it's safe you're ensuring it's sterile you're ensuring it's two hands should a patient need it. So that's a small end of a value-added medicine example. If I go up, one of the biggest problems we see with treating the world's biggest killer, heart disease, um, and treating hypertension is compliance. So people have a diagnosis, they maybe have an event, a myocardial infarction or something like that. They, they then get put on medicines, you know, be the blockers, ACE inhibitors, whatever. And they've got to take them for life. And typically they're taking combinations. So I saw some data at the last VAM conference that shows that if you just make a polypill of these things, compliance goes up. So it's not the biggest technology breakthrough to go and combine APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients in a tablet, but it helps people take them. Now we're doing something quite special. I'm going to have to be a bit generic about how I explain it. But the other thing that causes people to be non-compliant, non-adherent to their treatment is side effects. So what we found in treatment of hypertension, there's quite big gaps between the different dosing levels that you're given. So maybe it's a 20 meg, then you try a 40 meg, then you try an 80 meg. There's a big range in between. And everyone's idiosyncratic. Everyone's a bit different. So maybe one person needs a 24 meg dose or a 32 mg dose. That doesn't really exist today. And what we are finding is that you can plot a direct correlation between each person to find their optimal dose that minimizes side effects, but maximizes the impact of the medicine. It's called precision medicine as a concept. But if you do that and you alleviate side effects, our view, our contention is that that should improve adherence. And we're doing it in a way which we think is really smart which should limit the load on general practitioners. Typically, if you need to change a dose, you've got to go book an appointment. 
we all know how stretched primary care is in, in many countries around the world. Let's try and find a way to make that dosing autonomous or automatic. Um, and by doing that, we can reduce the load on the health system, improve patient outcomes, ultimately avoiding heart attacks, et cetera, which are hugely expensive to treat, let alone so damaging to people. And all we're doing is taking something old and efficacious and changing its treatment paradigm. So there's just a couple of examples. You know, we claim something like 16 different tools in our toolkit to improve medicines. And hopefully that gave you a little flavour of some of the things our technicians can do. Thank you for that. Yes, this area of personalised medicine and uh, dosing for individuals is becoming a sort of hot topic in the industry at the moment. But sticking with Barmanovia and what you've been discussing about its work in this area, and given also your chair role at the VAM sector group, I wondered if you could explain how Pharmanovia is demonstrating leadership in its ESG goals and looking ahead to net zero. Absolutely. Look, um, I'm really proud of this story. So um, <laughs> both the E, the S and the G, to be honest, one of my first moves when I came in as CEO was to hire a very effective um, head of compliance and governance. She also runs the E and the S, as it were, as well. But I think a well-run company with good checks and balances, good visibility is the secret to changing the world, changing the economy. You know, we cannot shirk our responsibilities on good governance. Things that have happened just in the last two years that we're one of the very few pharma companies that reports our carbon down to scope three. So scope mm -hmm. three is where you're actually getting out into your supplier base. Last I saw it, something like 16 of the top 500 were reporting this. So we're up there with the, the, the really big companies actually taking on our responsibility regards the E part of ESG. Um, we've got our science-based target initiative approved, so we're net zero by 2030 is the focus. We're doing it in a number of ways, and actually being good doesn't have to be expensive. One of the, the smartest things we've done is to try and work out where we can stop shipping medicines by air. Air freight is quicker, but it's more expensive and far more damaging to the planet. So we've now moved a very significant component part of our supply chain to sea shipment, reducing by you know tens, hundreds of thousands of, of, of kilos the CO2 emissions, but also getting it cheaper. That said, it does take longer, and we've had to reconfigure and reimagine our supply chains to deal with that lengthier routing. But all in, we save money and we help hit our SBTI targets. So that's a good example. Look beyond that, we're actually private equity backed as a company. So our, our principal uh, shareholder, Triton, they're a Swedish private equity, and ESG is one of their core watch areas. They they make all of the portfolio companies that they invest in build a program around ESG. We're one of the absolute leaders in the fifty odd companies that they've got um, ESG reporting on, and every year we get a praise. There's there's touch points through the year to make sure we're on track with our planning. But I was really proud, you know, to get assessed by our main shareholder as, as one of the real leaders in, in ESG. And that's been a multi-year journey to get there. Little innovations around it, it. It's something that affects us all. So why not make it something people's remuneration is based on? So I think we're one of the few companies that has a standing ESG goal 
for every single member of staff, myself included, and that is actually assessed as part of your annual appraisal, and that ultimately um, impacts on 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 people's remuneration. So we walk the walk. You know, this is not just lip service. This is something that we genuinely plug into how we incentivize and reward our people. So hopefully that gives you a flavour that you know we are pretty comprehensive with our ESG activity. I think we're quite frankly best in class, and we ain't done yet. There's plenty more we can innovate and, and deliver. A full flavour indeed. Again, thank you for that, James. So this is all looking to the future, obviously. I mean, net zero um, goals for 2030, not too far off now. So if we consider the future more broadly, what does that future look like in a projected fashion for PharmaNovia? And additionally, alongside that, what trends would you predict for the wider industry? Sure. Okay. Um, it's always good to get your crystal ball out. Um, so <laughs> safe harbour statements uh, being put in place straight away. When I look at the sort of dichotomy of medicines I was talked about, the generics on the one hand, the the large cap pharma on the other, there's a couple of key challenges. One is with generics, um, there's been a constant cost pressure. And I think health systems are incorrect. They look for cost and saving, not value. And what that's led to is big aggregation of generic supply chains. Effectively, only the biggest can have the economies of scale to compete. And what that's basically done over time is to create a very fragile ecosystem. That if one key player, for whatever reason, has a failure, millions of people can't get their medicine. And so the net result has been huge price pressure on the generic side that's making it almost untenable and certainly doesn't allow much spend on innovation. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got large cap pharma. Now they're coming up to or in the middle of the biggest patent cliff that has ever happened. So there was a similar sort of event, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. What you had then was the first and second generation biologics, so the simple recombinant proteins, the EPOs, the GCSFs, followed up by the MABs, the Herceptins, the Rituximabs, et cetera. They're all coming off patent. And the biosimilar industry, you know, which is part effectively of the generics industry, is bringing that price pressure to bear. So what that's led to is a need for large caps to recoup their pipelines. However, what's really gone on at large caps is that they've outsourced a lot of their development. It wasn't cost effective. They weren't getting good ROI on in-house development efforts. So effectively, they cast around trying to buy the latest tech that's out there to go and change the game. That's very much third gen biotech. That's your CRISPR. That's your gene editing. It, 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 it's mRNA um, and, and nucleic acid vaccines. It's um, ADCs and 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 the like. But here's the problem, particularly with the cell and gene therapy areas. Nobody knows how to price it, and nobody knows who's going to win. So they're all placing bets. It's almost casino capitalism. You know, they do the best they can to try to get their crystal ball out. But you've got to deploy billions on an unproven technology in a very volatile space. So either way, that's going to cost and that will flow down to health systems. So I keep talking about value-added medicines being the Goldilocks solution. It's in between these two extremes. And there's a lot we can do with the legacy medicines. But the key thing is there has to be an incentivization loop. If these things aren't going to get paid for, no one will invest to get them to market. 
And that's where Europe's broken right now. There needs to be a better dialogue between the policymakers, the regulators, and at a national competence, the payers. And we need to try and break the cycle that it's either generic or brand new blockbuster. There is a massive space in between that I think can really improve health outcomes and not break the exchequer. So if you ask me about crystal ball and themes, that's the big one. I see a um, great opportunity to get healthcare costs under control. And Nicole, I'll give you a fascinating sort of factoid. I was reading The Economist the other week. They used to talk about the iron rule of healthcare, not, not, not just medicine, but healthcare spend, was that it always rose as a per- percentage of GDP. Now, if you go from sort of 2000 to sort of 2009, that was the case. But then you see post the credit crunch, post real pressure going on to country treasuries, this modification of the rates in healthcare spend. So it was pretty flat for the next decade. And that's what is like nice doing their thing. It's it's, 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 exchequer has been forced to limit entry and ration, in my opinion. But what you then see is a balance with COVID, as you'd expect, you know, it's a global pandemic unprecedented in our lifetimes. And now it's falling. What's really interesting is twofold. One is it's falling below the rate of that last decade. Two, if they hadn't modified and the rate carried on that it was 2000 to 2009, there's about 2.2 trillion of spend per year that would have been landing that isn't. So I think this iron rule's melted. And for me, that means that there is some money to invest, particularly if you can deal with the demographic time bomb a lot of countries have through value-added medicines. So my big pitch to payers is be smart, get ahead of the curve. A small investment now, and I'm talking really small, will get you that healthcare spend coming down. And that has massive societal impact. But if you don't act now, you're going to have the demographic time bomb go off not enough uh, taxpayers to pay for the pensioners and to pay for all the medicines. So if that's a bit dark. No, I, I was just thinking that's very valuable insight for listeners. And indeed, consider value-added medicines as that um, perhaps preferable third pathway. Now, to sort of close our conversation, James, and it's been a fascinating conversation, so thank you for that. I just wondered... Not that what you've not been saying has not been informative and enlightening, but I wondered if you had a further summative takeaway for listeners that they could potentially mull over once the podcast is finished. Oh, pearls of wisdom. Um, Mm. I mean, I've obviously talked a lot about value-added medicine. I guess there's another thematic that's out there. In the last few years in particular, you've seen that the number of filings into bodies like the FDA are predominantly now coming from small development companies. So often university spin-outs or, or startups. It's not the big large cap farmers who are dominating drug registration. So first point, you know, take the US, it's, 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 there's a very good developer network. What you're also seeing is around the world patches of equivalent talent growing. So China, you know, you saw AZ recently licensed a GLP-1 oral, you know, ultimately to compete against Lily and Novo on, on, on the obesity drugs. Um, that came out of China. And if you look at the Chinese biotech industry, the amount of fermentation capacity is going to outstrip the rest of the world soon. You're not seeing just a biosimilar industry. You're seeing revolutionary new biotech 
growing up in China and to a degree in places like South Korea. Now, typically, the development houses, be it in the US, be it in South Korea, be it in China, don't have global footprints. They don't have access to patients all over the place. So if we're not careful, we risk a siloization of medicine that effectively great products that can change the lives of thousands, millions of people will only be available in different geographies. So for me, running a global company, that's something that does excite me quite a lot. You know, we could be a conduit to some of these new technologies and to bring them to more patients around the globe. So there you go, Nicole. I, I, I wasn't intending to say that, but hopefully that was a perspective that you know, maybe people weren't aware of. Again, James, a valuable perspective. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Nicole. So that concludes another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at at Pharma Forum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.